We're coming into the final chapters of the book of Revelation. As I said when I introduced this a few weeks back, it's his only uh, a whistle, a whistle-top tour. And uh, through, through this book, a fascinating book, a challenging book, but a, a book with a lot of relevance for today. Living life with the end in sight, and I've told you various times is where that's come from, in the terms of the question about people are asking me, what are the plans you have for your retirement? Are you looking forward to your retirement? And then the conviction that I had very strongly was that as Christians, we should be living very much with the end in sight. Because we have this hope, we have this assurance that we've been singing about, that we've been speaking about. We have this certainty. And this le- only this week, just reading in the scriptures and reading these end chapters of Revelation, just coming across that phrase in chapter 22, where it, it, I, I, I quoted it earlier on, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. They will see his face. And that hit me. They hit me. One day I'm going to see my Saviour's face. One day I'm going to see my God's face. One day it's going to be fully revealed. And that is the hope and that is the assurance. Forget that there'll be no more death, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more crying. I shall see his face. The veil will be lifted. But before we get to there, we need to step back. Because this morning we're looking very much into chapters 17, 18 and 19. As I say, it's a whistle-top tour. And as as we've moved through the book of Revelation, there are various points where we would have loved to have stopped off a little bit more and to taken in the view. But you know what it is? Like through any journey in life, We're always in a hurry. We're always in a rush. We've always got a time schedule. And we have to whiz past some of the places where we would just like to stop and meander. This hasn't been a meander. This has been, you know, straight down the M11 or or whatever without really sort of taking in all the places that we could. As we've looked through this, we've seen that John is actually very much telling the same story time and time again. He's looking at history through different lenses, through different images. He's beginning very much, you know, where, at the point where Jesus ascends back to the Father in heaven. And he's talking about AD history, that what, what we know as AD history, the period of time that we're living in. The period of time between Jesus returning to his heavenly father and the time when he will return. And he's telling us this story over and over in different ways. And he's painting a broad picture. And every layer brings something more to life within that that picture. And so he speaks about seven seals. And he takes us us through those seals of all the things that will happen within that period of what the world will be like. But then he brings us to that point 
where he opens the seals. Yes, and there is rumbling and there is thunder in heaven. The final seal, the seventh seal. And there is earthquakes and flashes of lightning. He brings us just a pinprick of, of the final days. But then he moves on and he goes into seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets are blown and each time something happens, whether it's to the sea, whether it's to the land, but God moves. And ultimately those seven trumpets are each blown. And in the seventh trumpet we find that there in chapter 11, it speaks about the time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. But then with the seven trumpets, we have then these seven images. The woman, the child, the dragon... The beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, the lamb and the 144,000, the harvesting of the her of the world and of the winepress of God's fury. It's all sevens, perfect. And then we have the seven bowls of God's wrath and that's where we come in this morning. It's almost as if John is bringing us and each, each image and each series of images are building on the previous ones and to a bigger picture. And then we read in chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a vo loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? To a voice on a cross that just simply said, it is finished. There's a declaration. It is done. It has happened. It has taken place. It is secure. And then at those words, there came flashes of lightning, rumbles and pearls of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like this has ever occurred since mankind had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split in three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon, the great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. It's traumatic. It's beyond our imagination. Something we don't want to face or think about. Then in chapter 17... Verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with wine of, their, of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away to the spirit of the, into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Her hair, she held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, 
the mother of prostitutes and an abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk and the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who had bore her testimony to Jesus. Not a pretty picture, is it? Not a pretty picture. And then we read in chapter 18, another voice, another angel, verse 1. Coming down from heaven, he had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendour. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Later on, in verse 20, Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. And then we hear something of that rejoicing in chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then we find the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down and worship God who, cry, who is seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing water and like the pearls of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. What's it all mean? The final chapters of the book of Revelation are dominated by two cities, which are likened to two very different female figures. There's Babylon, the prostitute, and then there's Jerusalem, the bride. They represent two communities, two sets of values, two destinies and two futures. And the question John poses to us is this. Where do you belong? In which city do you abide? Are we seduced by the gaudy treasures of the one or do we set our hearts on the glory of the other? Do we feel at home in the world or do we belong to the kingdom of the Lamb? 
Today, we'll be primarily looking at Babylon. Babylon the prostitute. Her background, her profile, and her overthrow and demise. In two weeks, on the 14th of July, we should be concluding our whistle-stop tour through Revelation by looking at the fulfilment of our Christian hope, Jerusalem, the bride. Prior to this chapter, 17, Babylon has been mentioned twice. We've already mentioned once in, in chapter 16, but also in Revelation 14, verse 8, the fall of Babylon was suddenly announced without warning. Fallen, fallen, Babylon, the great, in the midst of the discourse there, the images there. But in, Roman, in, in, in Revelation 16, 19, as a result of the outpouring of the seventh bowl of God's wrath, which brings a great cosmic collapse in the world, we read that God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Both verses refer to Babylon's overflow in the final judgment. But neither tells us who she is or what she symbolises. But we now have two whole chapters devoted to the phenomena of Babylon. Chapter 17 identifies her for us, while chapter 18 describes in the most graphic details her devastation and destruction. Now Babylon was once an actual city founded in the region of the ancient city of Babel. And the name means the gate of the gods. It's in that area of, of Iraq, about 60 miles southwest of where Baghdad is. That's the area where Babylon would have been. In the Bible, Babel, in Genesis 11, is the first recorded idolatrous empire where humanity came together to rebel against God. They wanted to build a tower to reach the heavens. They wanted to reach God. They wanted to become God. Later, in later history, Babylon later arose to become the political, commercial and religious centre of a world empire and was also the greatest threat at the time to Israel, the people of God. Babylon, remember, was the, was the nation that actually overrun the people of Judah and took them into exile. Babylon was noted for its excessive luxury, luxury, its luxurious living, and its moral decadence, its obscenity. The title Babylon the Great is taken from Daniel 4, verse 30. Now Babylon, as a city, was destroyed around 539 BC by Cyrus the Great, a long time before John's vision, a long time before John was on the island of Patmos. But it subsequently became known as a byword for everything perverted, everything obscene, everything corrupt, and everything opposed to God. John as I already mentioned, is in Roman exile on Patmos. He would not dare to openly speak against the Roman Empire. If he did, he would have signed his own death warrant. 
So he uses Babylon to describe degenerate Rome and all her successive emperors. He is calling out the corruption and godlessness of, Ro- of the Roman Empire and prophesying its ultimate destruction. Now just imagine for a moment here that John is writing to these weak churches across the region who are dominated by Rome. And they can never in their wildest imagination think of being set free from the shackles of Rome. But John, in this passage, is telling them that Rome will fall. The nation will fall. And that happened in AD 410, when the city was overrun by the very people it once ruled. In chapter 17, verse 16, it says, For God has put into their hearts and to accomplish his purpose by agreeing, agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. They're overrun by the very people that they sought to be dominating. But also, at the same time, John is identifying, to quote Paul in Ephesians 6, the spiritual forces of evil that are around in the world. Those forces of evil that are behind the empire, driving it and compelling it and controlling it. The prostitute, we say, we are told, sits on a scarlet beast. 17 verse 3. Easily recognised as the beast from the sea in chapter 13, verse 1. An accomplice of Satan. For satanic powers motivate her. Satanic powers control her. And she sits on that beast. Babylon is Rome for John, but she is also a metaphor symbolising every godless and immoral society throughout history. Every nation that has set itself up against the purposes of God. So John is drawing from the Old Testament history, bringing its relevance to the present day for his readers, but then also bringing to it the relevance for us today in 21st century UK. It doesn't take much from these chapters to draw a profile of Babylon. These chapters are in some senses are very shocking if you start to read them and you try, try to visualise them because to remember that John is trying to write down a vision. He's trying to write down what he saw. And as we've talked about before, so often what we write isn't quite what we see. Because what we see is more than what we write. So much more. But there's a profile that can be drawn of Babylon from these chapters. A profile, if you like, of what these spiritual forces use. 
to bring the world into adultery, to bring the world into unfaithfulness against the one true living God. There's idolatry. Drawing them into idolatry. That is spiritual unfaithfulness. The word adultery in scripture is often associated with unfaithfulness to God and the worship of idols. I'll leave you to imagine or to think in terms of what the idols of today are that in a sense draw people away. It was interesting just watching the recent European Championship, football championships and Liverpool supporters and I'm not pointing the finger just at Liverpool supporters but there was one man who was going crazy after the result when they lifted the cup and he referred to that this is my religion this is my religion this is what he lived for because idolatry is what we live for don't just think of a graven image on the side of a wall idolatry is what our passions are what we live for and it can be family it can be work it can be ambition it can be football clubs it can be many many different things that take us away from wholehearted devotion and worship of our living God. There's idolatry, there's immorality. It's interesting that it's Babylon the prostitute. Immorality, literal as well as symbolic. Notice in chapter 18, verse 3, for the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich on her excessive luxuries. Intoxicated, they become drunk. And let's be honest, as a society and as a world, we have become intoxicated with sex. Let's be honest about it. But then there's the extravagance and luxury. Here for Babylon economics were God. It was the merchants who mourned her demise. And economics ruled. The bottom line ruled. And as we look around the globe, what is it that rules? It's the stock markets. And the stock markets fall in one area and the rest of the world catches a cold. There. Because we see money as identity. We see money as power. We see money as God. Then there's the use of sorcery and magic. I need to move on. There's tyranny and oppression leading to the martyrdom of God's people. Don't you feel it today in this country? There's the silencing of the church. The church is gradually being sidelined. There's a silencing of free speech in the name of tolerance. You cannot say anything that is against what is the accepted norm. And then there's arrogance bordering on self-deification. 18 verse 7. Give her as much... 
Give her as much torment and grief as, as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. I sit as enthroned as queen. Self-deification. From politicians, sports people and celebrities. People lift them up. I don't want to say too much about recent political deliberations, whether it's this side of the Atlantic or the other side of the Atlantic, but there's also that, there's, there appears to be that Messiah syndrome stepping in. I've got the answer, I can change it, I will do it. Elevating themselves. So it is that chapter 18 begins with another angel shouting, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. Three times the angel cries, Woe, woe to you, great city. And as one commentator says, the orgy of chapter 17 has turned into a wake in chapter 18, where the chief mourners are the kings of the earth, the power brokers, the merchants, the sellers, and the sea captains, there in 18 verses 9 through to 18, the traders. Those who have got rich, those who have got powerful, those who have become authoritative on the back, if you like, of Babylon. John's focus in Revelation 18 is not on idolatry of the world order, nor is it on the persecution and oppression of the church, although that is in the background. Instead, the focus is on Roman, Rome's excess, excess and exploitation of resources and people. It's a very modern day issue, isn't it? The gods of prosperity, consumers, consumerism and ever-increasing standards of living. Those are the gods that John is confronting. John is challenging the ideologies and the powers that lay behind every society, man-made man society in the world today. We too live in a Babylon where the mantra is to live to excess. If you want it, you take it. Because you deserve it. The gods of our culture are selfishness, greed, lust and power. And a person's value is seen in what they possess, not in who they are. Jesus said, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He was speaking that to a rich young ruler who had come into a windfall and was building bigger barns to store his wealth. And he says, life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And he goes on in that passage to say, be generous, give to the poor, get yourself a bank that can't go bankrupt, a bank in heaven, far from bank robbers, safe from embezzlers, a bank you can bank on. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where, you, where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. A challenge, isn't it? John's message to us is very straightforward and it comes via a voice from heaven at the beginning, halfway through to verse 4, saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. 
He's echoing the call of Jeremiah in chapter 51 to come out of the historic Babylon, the people of Israel. He's not talking about geographical movement. He's not suggesting that they go into exile or create a ghetto. He's calling for an ideological movement. He wants us to adopt a different set of values, a different set of priorities, a different allegiance, a different object of worship. He's not against trade and commerce or possessions in themselves, but he does call for a separation from injustice, from exploitation and excess, and a turning away from it. As we read through Revelation, (coughs) we find that every act in the drama unfolding here on earth is accompanied by worship in heaven. In this passage, 17 through to 19, is no different. Its focus has been on earth and what is happening here, behind the scenes, the powers and the authorities that are controlling the societies around, the man-made societies around us. Its focus has been there, but its climax is in heaven. There is a call to rejoice. Verse 20, verse 19 of chapter 18. No, sorry, verse 20. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her and the judgment she imposed on you. And then chapter 19, we see that being enacted out in heaven. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We're invited to join in this song. Whether we choose to mourn the fall of Babylon or to sing reveals our ultimate allegiance. This song of heaven turns into a second invitation. Instead of an invitation from a prostitute in chapter 17, verse 1, we're invited to the bride, we're invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Instead of a woman clothed in purple, the purple of empire, we see a bride clothed in the fine linen of righteous deeds. Instead of an invitation to immorality, we're invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. In chapter 19, verse 9, the angel says to John, write this. John presumably had been feverishly scribbling away everything that he'd seen and heard. But this part of the vision must not be missed. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So great is this message, the angel feels compelled to add, these are the true words of God. In other words, I'm not making it up. This is no fairy tale. This is no fable. This has happened. It is done. Do you remember those words? It is done. It is sealed. These chapters speak about the ultimate demise of everything we know 
in this world. Preparing for the full kingdom of God to appear. The bride of Christ. And the question is, which kingdom are we in? In life and in history, the blessed people appeared to be the merchants and those who exercise power, isn't it? We'd say that today. The blessed people seem to be, you know, the powerful, the merchants. You know, there was uh, a friend of mine was down, was it in Portsmouth, where Donald Trump and the Queen went for the D-Day there. But wherever it was, Portsmouth or Plymouth, he was down there that day of the city. And he thought, oh, it's going to be dreadful to get out. But it wasn't. He got out just ahead of them, and the roads were clear. They weren't cleared for him, they were cleared for the powerful. Blessed, isn't it? Today we might say the tycoons, bankers, oligarchs and politicians. It is easy to envy the wealthy or aspire to their luxuries. In the process, it's easy to be seduced by the Babylon, the prostitute. But the true and lasting blessing is to be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where's your destiny? Where's your hope? Where's your security? Two weeks' time, we should be looking at Jerusalem, the bride and the full realisation of the hope and the expectation that we have. Let's pray. Father, we're conscious that this morning there's been a strong message in that and it challenges so much of what happens around us. And you've been teaching us over these weeks that yes, we are involved in a battle, a spiritual battle, a warfare, but we thank you that Jesus is victor, that the Lamb has overcome, that the Lamb is Lord. And we thank you that we are those who have been invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we pray that we might remain faithful, that we might remain strong, that we might remain true to him. Father, we thank you that you have the ultimate victory. And so it is in you we put our trust. Amen.